Hello, Avril Danchak here. Welcome to Teaching and Learning Consultation Skills Module 12, Managing Uncertainty in the Consultation, taking a deep dive into all aspects of uncertainty so that clinicians can manage it better and in less stressful ways. The podcasts preceding this examined the networking quadrant uncertainties, the dysfunctional ways out, and the effective strategies for working through uncertainty. How can working settings influence what happens in the networking quadrant? And how can we teach clinicians how to handle this aspect of uncertainty more effectively? Clinical settings can certainly help the management of uncertainty in the networking quadrant. Clinicians work in a very complex arena. The array of tests, investigations and specialty referral possibilities is huge. Moreover, with the increased fragmentation of the NHS and a multiplicity of providers, and these factors apply in many advanced healthcare systems, navigating the referrals can become more complex every week. So the settings in which clinicians work need to provide accurate and useful information about the network. There's plenty of generic good quality information available on the internet about referral guidelines, what tests to do and so on. But the places where clinicians work need to have clear systems for capturing what the network can do locally. Intranets or links to relevant websites covering locally available services should be familiar and available to all clinicians. Furthermore, in secondary care settings, where referrals back to general practice are commonplace, Specialist doctors could recognise that they are really asking the GP concerned for an opinion about the condition in question, rather than directing onward referral. If an ENT surgeon says, get a referral to a dermatologist from your GP, they may be expressing their own discomfort with a condition that a GP would be happy to manage without specialist dermatology input. Phrasing such letters back to the GP in terms of getting advice from your GP allows the GP to use their own expertise and understanding of how the referral network works from a primary care perspective. Organisations and teams can facilitate proper discussion prior to referral. Investigations, referral practices, the harms and benefits of referral and whether referral or investigation are needed at all should all be open to scrutiny. This is especially necessary at the induction of juniors or others in training and in primary care. The skills required to construct an effective referral or clinic letter should be acknowledged and practiced in all settings. Building relationships between referrers and other specialist services can make informal advice more easily available and this can result in more effective referrals. So, What kind of teaching methods can be used to help with uncertainty in the networking quadrant? Knowledge of the networks available and how to use them effectively can be assessed by asking those making referrals to consider alternatives, to establish informal links with providers to get information and advice without referral, and by teaching what content is required in referral letters. All clinicians should understand how effective use of resources policies work in their own area and they should be able to have the skills to explain confidently to patients why commissioners have chosen to allocate funds in particular ways. Money spent on one service is effectively removed from another. All clinicians should be able to see this wider picture 
and not just fight for their own corner. Such skills can be assessed with audits of referral letters, comparing what is requested with the outcome achieved, ensuring that all the relevant information is included. Do letters to other clinicians contain clear statements of the reason for the referral and also the purpose of referral? These may be different. For example, the reason for referral may be that somebody has a spot of unknown origin, but the purpose of referral is to establish whether or not this is a malignant melanoma. The skills needed to write useful clinical letters to GPs are also part of the networking quadrant. And this aspect should also include remembering to think about copying such letters to patients and making it useful to them also. All learners should be proficient in identifying the ethical conflicts and constraints in any situation, so that when faced with something novel or difficult, they have the ethical thinking tools at hand to work through the decision. This means replacing a wish for certainty of outcome with a certainty of process. Learners could also debrief situations where referral or investigation has caused harm to the patient, remembering that harm may be physical, but also psychological or social. Holding uncertainty and anxiety isn't always easy. Some research suggests that the selection of medical students favours those who do not tolerate uncertainty or ambiguity well. In training settings, leaders can promote and model attitudes that identify, tolerate and even welcome ambiguity and flexibility. Clinicians need to accept that the skilled management of anxiety, their own and the patient's, is actually part of everybody's business. Explaining things helpfully and positively uses specific skills and these are covered in the core TALT module number four. Thinking ethically and understanding how resource constraints operate is actually a professional duty. Saying to the patient, oh, such a body won't fund this, which is terrible, can actually harm the patient. It can be very useful to get learners to think about the kinds of harms that referral or inadequate investigations might cause. And here are some examples. Clinicians could be asked to look out for other situations that they encounter. So a patient in the final stages of lung cancer looks pale and has low blood pressure. The doctor does a blood count at home and finds that the haemoglobin is seven and then refers the patient for admission for a possible transfusion. Sadly, the patient then dies on a trolley in casualty. This is not a good outcome. Holding skills and discussion with relevant colleagues could have enabled the patient to die in her preferred place, which in this case was at home. Another situation. A 35-year-old man with many work stresses and worries comes complaining of a funny feeling in his abdomen. Although clinically anxiety is the diagnosis, he's referred for an ultrasound that then shows a harmless renal cyst. He becomes even more anxious about this result and starts to worry that he's really got renal cancer. He insists on a urology referral, increasing the weight for other patients, and has a repeat scan, wasting more resources, and remains anxious. His work stress is not addressed properly, and he has an unnecessary allergic reaction to the contrast used in one of the investigations. These are real, concrete harms that learners should be invited to reflect upon. To whet your appetite, the following podcasts 
discuss the negotiating quadrant. And this is when one clinician and one patient are sitting together to try and deal with uncertainties about management and treatment. Thank you for listening to Talk 12 on managing uncertainty in consultations. Make sure to get all the episodes by subscribing to the Talc Talks podcast on Podbean or your other podcast provider. All the podcasts and the other teaching and learning consultation skills materials are available at consultationskills.com. Our book, Mapping Uncertainty in Medicine, What Do You Do When You Don't Know What To Do? by myself, Avril Danchak, Alison Lee and Geraldine Murphy is available online and through all good bookshops.